Hosea chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 14, reading through the end of chapter 3. This is the word of the living God. Let's again give attention to it. It's written for you, to help you, to encourage you in your pilgrimage in the Christian life. Hosea chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord." And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say, you are my God. And the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leech leech of, of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Amen. This is the word of the living and true God. The story is told about a young man. His name was Tom. He, he was a, a, a child who loved toys like most children. And he had a, a toy, a boat. And he took this boat uh, to the edge of a river uh, that he might play with it, that he might do what boats do, float along in the water. Not much good to have a boat if there's no water. And so he did that. He went to this river and he carefully placed it in the water and he slowly let out the string that he had attached to it. He saw how smoothly this boat moved through the water as he sat in the warm sunshine admiring this little boat that he he built. Suddenly, without warning, a strong current caught the boat. And though Tom, this boy, he tried with all of his might to bring it back to shore, he couldn't. The string broke. The little boat raced downstream, gone, it seemed, forever. Tom ran along, of course, looking for it. The boat slipped out of sight, never to be seen. He kept looking all afternoon. He searched for the boat. He searched and he searched. And finally, when it was too dark to look any longer, dejectedly, he went home. 
A few days later, on the way home from school, Tom spotted a boat just like his, just like his in a store window there in town. When he got closer, he looked. He looked peering into the window, and he realized, that, that's my boat. It's mine. I made it. It belongs to me. So he hurries, he hurries into the store, to the store manager. He said, sir, sir, that's, that's my boat in, in the window. I made that boat. It belongs to me. The manager said, well, son, I'm sorry, but someone else bought it this, uh, brought it in this morning. If you want it, you have to buy it for $1. Tom ran home, counted all his money. He had exactly $1. He reached the store. He rushed to the counter. Here's the money for my boat. As he left the store, Tom hugged his boat and said, now you're twice mine. First I made you, and now I bought you. As we think of this story, it's fictional, I suspect, as we think of the events of this story and how it even relates to the events that we will consider here in the latter page, the latter verses of chapter 2, but particularly chapter 3 of this prophecy of Hosea, we note indeed that the fact that it is God who made us. It is, of course, true that God has made everybody. God has given life to every single person on this planet. But in a unique sense, in a unique way, He has made you the redeemed of the Lord. He has made you that you might be His. And indeed you are. Because He has not only made you, He has bought you. He has redeemed you. He has brought you from the place of misery and sin, the place of bondage, the the place of Egypt. And He is with you, faithfully guiding and leading you. You're not just once His by virtue of creation. You are twice His because He made you and then He redeemed you. Have you ever stopped and considered the topic of redemption? I know we hear this theme quite often in church, and we ought to, of course, because it is the central theme of the Bible, the central theme of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Do you give much thought to it? That you're not just once the God of heaven, you are twice His. Perhaps you do. Perhaps you think about it. Maybe you think about it merely from a theological point of view. But I would encourage you to think of it not only from that point of view, the theology of it all, which most of you could articulate, I suspect, but also from a very personal, practical point of view. You see, it was personal. It wasn't a theological construct that the Lord Jesus Christ came to resolve. He came to resolve the problem of your sin. You were wayward. He rescued you. You were rebellious. He claimed you. You were the one lost in sin and misery, and He saved you. The theology, of course, is what we know in our five points of Calvinism, which, by the way, Calvin would have 
did not invent, and he frankly probably would have repudiated in some sense to think of having any kind of theological idea attached, his name attached to any kind of theological idea. Just the kind of man he was. But we know this is limited atonement. Put a different way, a better way. We know this as particular redemption. That God had determined in eternity past to not only make you, to give you flesh and bones, and the ability to hear and to see, but He also determined to rescue you and save you. That you might not only enjoy this life, but really, truly enjoy that life to come. Here in this passage in Hosea, the words of that, that echo uh, at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 are striking. They're, they're remarkable given the circumstances. The context, of course, as we have considered, and it's been a few weeks, I realize, so bear with me as I review just briefly the basic uh, panorama of problems that exist for the nation of Israel at this particular time. They are rebellious. They are wayward. They are idolaters. Uh, they are described as adulterers. They are described as an unfaithful wife. They have done wretched things in the face of the God who has loved them. He has been, he, been patient with them for hundreds of years. He has sent the problem. He has pleaded with them to return to him, and they continue in their obstinance. And yet we see, don't we, the God who not only made them, but the God who is determined to redeem them. Even in spite, despite the fact that they have been so rebellious, despite the fact that they have been so sinful, he's going to rescue them anyway. Because that's the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible who is long-suffering and patient with sinners. And indeed He is here. We've noted already in this second chapter up to verse 13, we noticed really the indictment of Jehovah. We noticed the, the striking words of the God of heaven who writes things that are difficult to read. The things about us and things about them. And we must not, we must not, and we, we must resist the temptation to read these things and think that's them, that's what they did. I would never do those things. I'm not like them. But the truth is we are, and we were. But God still redeemed you anyway. God still wooed you. You belong to him. And he continues to do that, even today, even this night, He's not going to let you go. He's going to continue doing what a faithful God must do to redeem a people. And so I want to show you this evening through the words of chapter 2 at the end. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. I'll spend most of my time in chapter 3. But I want to show you here in this passage that the Spirit of God is teaching you and me that the redeeming, about the redeeming, securing love purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, your King and Savior, who will lead you safely to your heavenly rest or safely home. I'm going to show you that the Spirit of God is teaching us here in these, these verses, chapter 2 and into chapter, into, through chapter 3, teaching you about your redeeming, the redeeming and securing love purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, your King and Savior, who will lead you safely home.
Now, you might, as you probably are, I know at least one person in this room who highlights her Bible whenever I preach a text, and it's probably highlighted. I have preached Hosea 3 here before. I don't remember when it was. But I've changed the sermon somewhat to include the words of chapter 2, to lead into chapter 3 in such a way that I hope by the end of it you see the greatness and faithfulness of the God of heaven. That is my goal. Three points, not two, three. First, we will see the steadfast love of Jehovah. We'll see that in the the balance of chapter 2. And then for the entirety of the five verses of chapter 3, we'll see second, the securing of the people, and then the safety of the people. The steadfast love of Jehovah, the securing of the people, and the safety guaranteed to the people, or the safety of the people. Let's first consider this steadfast love of Jehovah. What we have here really is an image that is being played out beginning with verse 14. It's there. The words of the first 13 verses of the chapter are still ringing in the ears of the people as they heard it. But God doesn't close the book at the end of verse 13. He continues, doesn't he? You note there in verse 14, at least in your English Bibles, the first word of the verse is that word that, well, you know the saying, therefore, therefore I should look and see what it's therefore. What is going on? What is Yahweh, what is Jehovah going to do in light of the fact that he's just basically condemned the people for their idolatry? Well, he's going to do something, isn't he? If you look, just cursory scan through verses from verse 14 to the end of verse 23, note how many times the personal pronoun I is used. It's almost as though God took the pen right out of Hosea's hand and started writing for himself. This is what I'm going to do. Notice how many times I will is said. Verse 14, verse 15, I will. Verse, um, verse 16, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me Baal, for I will, verse 17, remove the names of the Baals. And on it goes, I will, I will, I will do all of these things. God is determined to tell and to teach and to show and to communicate to the people his enduring love in in the face of, of their rebellion. Despite the threatenings of the previous section, Jehovah now here is going to renew his love with his bride. The language is is there. It's poetical for the most part. In verse 14, we have that beginning of that poetical section, the first two verses, and then it picks back up in verse 21. But notice that interesting word right there in the beginning of of the section where he says, therefore, behold, take look, see, pay attention, I will, what? Allure her. This is a husband to his bride. A jilted husband, an offended husband, a wounded husband, but a husband who loves his wife. He's going to allure her. He's going to date her again, as it were, if you'll forgive the analogy. He is going to bring her to her senses. He is going to do these things 
He is going to renew his love, his covenant love for his bride. There's a labor that God involves himself in here. It's hard to see, I think, if you're not well acquainted with biblical theological um, themes throughout the Old Testament. It would be very easy to read right over the language that he gives in that first, that first verse where he says, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor. Ding, ding, ding. That should get your attention rapidly. And for those of you who know, good for you. But I'll tell you in a minute, don't panic. What we have going on here is the labor of God to erect, to to construct a second exodus. You know the first exodus, you're well acquainted with it. We began to read in Genesis 37 of the the onset of that first exodus in which Joseph is moved into the land of Egypt by God's providential care that he might preserve a people. And it's from that preservation that Moses comes about and he leads the people out of Exodus, the the place of our misery and bondage and sin, and he brings them across the wilderness to Mount Sinai where they worship the God of heaven, receive his laws. But what do they do? They rebel. They, They don't believe. They reject the God who saved them. And so, as the writer to the Hebrews tells us, they all perished in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And that, that, that blessing was passed on to their children, in which then they crossed the Jordan into the promised land, the place of our heavenly rest. God here is hinting, he is communicating that there will be a second exodus. Not like the first one but one that will be permanent and complete. And all of these problems, the things that he lists here in that day, verse 16, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You won't won't be distracted by the, the gods of this world. You won't be turned aside to the bales, as he puts it here. You will be united to the triune God in in a way that is unique. uh, New hearts and a new desire and new priorities and a love for the God of heaven. The completion of that covenant, that tripartite covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. God is tipping his hand. He is telling the people that there is coming a day that all of this misery, all of this rejection, all this rebellion, it is all being prepared in such a way that I will deliver you through a second exodus that is headed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. A few weeks ago, I preached from Mark chapter 9, the Mount of Transfiguration. I labored to show you that that is the new, the new Mount Sinai and the greater Moses on the new Mount Sinai in which he departs from that mountain. And he comes down from there and having conversation with Moses and Elijah. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the exodon in the Greek the exodus of the Savior, the exodus that he's going to purchase. What is that exodus? It is your redemption. This is what God is getting at here when he says that I will bring them into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to them. But there's another hint as to why this is a second exodus. Notice the valley that is mentioned here in the passage. It's not accidental, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is deliberate, intentional. Why does he say or even mention the valley of Achor? 
Well, turn back if you want to, or you can just trust me at this point. You probably should be able to. But if you want to verify, you can turn back to Joshua chapter 7. Now, I've preached through Joshua. You should know the story. This is, of course, the sin of Achan. Not a banner day in the life of Israel. They de- they're defeated at Ai. This is a disaster. Ai, very inferior forces against Israel, and Israel gets creamed. And in verses 25 through 26, we get reference to this idea that, is, that Hosea picks up in chapter 2. And what does he say there? I'm trying to think about where I should start reading. Well, let's just start reading in verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys, and sheep and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Well, what's going to happen there? Well, verse 25, Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Now, maybe you have one of those Bibles, got a little footnote there, and what does Achor mean? Trouble. Hardship. When the people of Israel heard about this valley of Achor, they know the story as well as you do. What are they thinking? Well, this is the place where Achan got stoned. There was fire, came out of heaven. It was a disaster for us. What a mess. But notice what Hosea does. What does Jehovah say here in this verse when he makes reference to the new exodus that he's going to bring about by the Lord Jesus Christ? What does he say? Therefore, I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor not a place of trouble, not a place of disaster, not a mess, uh, but hope. This is what he's communicating. He's showing that the second exodus that's going to come by the person of Christ that will alleviate their sin And their rebellion, it's all pictured by the simple expression of the valley of Achor. No longer a valley of trouble for the redeemed of the Lord, but it's a valley of hope. Brothers and sisters, you have that hope if you know Christ this evening. If you know the greater Moses who left the mountain and came down and went to the cross. He didn't go there just for a blob of humanity and maybe I'll die for somebody, I'm not really sure. No, no, he died for you. No longer is that valley a place of trouble, no longer is that a place of condemnation, but this valley now is a place of hope that is instilled in you by the work of the Holy Spirit that you might have hope for your entire life, that you might not see, what, a land, but the land the better country, the new heavens and the new earth, in which is articulated here in that poetical section beginning in verse, well, actually before that, in verse 18. 
Notice the allusions and the references here to that great and glorious day when we will no longer be interested in idols or sin. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears. Look what he says. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. It's a reference clearly to the culmination of the new exodus that's rooted, that's going to be secured, is secured by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Moses. A place in which there is no more sorrow, no more rebellion, no more sin. May the Lord hasten the day when that occurs. All of it he gives to the people here as a means of hope that he might woo them that he might woo them back to him, this redeeming God, this covenant-keeping God, this faithful God, in spite, despite their sin. He says, you're mine. I will not lose you. You are my wife. I'm going to woo you. I'm going to work. I'm going to be diligent. It's going to be my work. I will do this, and I will do this, and I will do this, that I might secure you for all of eternity. The idolatry of the land that we see in part now, even in our own hearts and our own lives, the idolatry that we're all in this fallen world prone to will someday come to an end. The battle with sin will no longer reign. You will be able to say with all of the integrity that one can muster on that great and glorious day, you are my God. And we are your people. And so Jehovah does the work. He acts as a loving husband to woo his bride back to himself. He does the work. And as he does the work, he remains faithful to his wandering bride. This meaning of this entire section at the end of chapter 2, put simply in, in summary, is that of a picture of the new exodus that will be accomplished and has been accomplished. From their point of view, it's in the future. But from your point of view, it is already done. It is finished, he said. The work that was prophesied of old, that was set forth even in the very opening pages of the Bible, is accomplished. This work through Christ, the people will indeed, those that he's purposed to redeem, will return to him. They will be reunited to their husband. They will dwell safely in the land that is prepared for them. Can there be any greater encouragement? Maybe you're here this evening. I don't know. I mean, I know you're here. I got to laugh. Maybe I should go on study leave more often. Maybe you're holding on to some, you're wrestling with some sin. Your conscience is plaguing you. It's bothering you. Why don't you look to Christ? Why don't you claim Him? This redeeming God who has placed His love upon you. He offers to you once again through the preaching of his word, even this evening, the reality of his covenant faithfulness and his expression of love 
that he will woo you. He will continue to do it. He is not going to let you go. If you belong to him, he's going to keep going. He's going to keep going until you turn to him. And you will turn to him. Don't hold on to it. Don't resist. There's no, there's no hope in that. The people in the days of Hosea were wretched people. Not unlike our world today. Not unlike people in the church. But our covenant, covenant and faithful, covenant keeping, faithful God continues to woo his bride. Well, after the speech of Jehovah, he now turns to give instruction to Hosea about another thing that he is to do, and I take it as literal. Unlike Calvin, who believes the marriage to Gomer was an allegory. No, I think it happened. It was real. Again, he appeals. He tells him, and there in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. There's a direct connection between the marriage of Gomer and, and Hosea and the marriage that God has for his people. And again, now here is going to use another one of those living object lessons to press home the point that he's just made in poetical language for the most part at the end of chapter 2 that point of which he's going to secure the people. It is a picture of redemption, of course. The command of Jehovah is there to Hosea. He tells him again, the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman. What? The implication, of course, should be obvious to you in that this is something that's been going on over and over again. This isn't a one-time oopsie. This is a repetitive lifestyle. Much like the people of Israel then that would repeatedly for hundreds of years rebel against the God of heaven and in his face worship the Baals and the idols of their day. He says, go, Mary, go again. Go, go, go get her. Who is this woman well, she's the woman that pictures Israel, the adulterous generation of Israel. That's what she's there for. That's her whole function, role in the prophecy itself. Gomer represents the adulterous, wicked, rebellious nation. And God tells Hosea to do what most of us would struggle to do. Go and take her as your wife. Again. What? You must imagine Hosea's reaction to all this. He's like, how many more times are you going to want? Are you serious? But he does. He goes, of course. He goes to claim this woman again in the face of her idolatry. Now, idolatry that has turned the hearts of the nation away from the living and true God. Brothers and sisters, idolatry will destroy you. Idolatry will turn your heart away from the God who, who purchased you. You doubt me? 
Go read 2 Kings. Go, go read our 1 Kings. Go, go read all about the life of Solomon. The wisest man that ever lived who didn't act very wisely at times. He gave his heart to other things, other people. Don't give your heart to other things. Give your heart to the God of heaven. That is the only place you'll find safety. The idolatry of the nation here in Hosea's day has turned their hearts so badly away from the God of heaven, yet, yet he continues to woo them. Marriage is real, as we've demonstrated already, but it is really a picture of the wooing love of the God of heaven, as we've seen already at the end of chapter 2. So I want you to go again, love a woman, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though even when they are turning their hearts and minds away from me. Now I quickly say, and I want to make sure I do say this, this is not license. Well, God saved me, so now I'm going to go live any way I want because he's never going to lose me anyway. The pastor just said so himself. No, no. Don't presume. It's not license to live wicked lives because God is going to rescue you. What kind of response would that be from someone who understands the redeeming love of God? But be that as it may, the people have turned. And we see because of this action that God commands to Hosea, the love of Yahweh, God determines to woo them and love them. He's the offended husband. The northern kingdom, represented by Gomer, is the wayward wife. Put a different way, more to the point, you and I are Gomer. Isn't that true? Isn't it true that at one time you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly lived according to the course and counsel of this world, listening to the, the advice and suggestions and actions of our true father, that is Satan himself? We were dead in sin, hopelessly lost, with no hope in the world whatsoever. We had placed our hope, our attention, our affections on idols we had done all kinds of horrible things against the God of heaven. You and I are him. We're, we, we are her. We are, we are Gomer. I know that doesn't sell a lot of sermons. It's not great news, but it's the truth. But God is Hosea. Hosea represents the God of heaven. Go marry her. Go woo her, he says. This is what God does for sinners. Do you think you came to Christ because of your intelligence? Your looks? Sarcasm went right through. Never mind. Where you live, your family line, your heritage, your, where you were born. Maybe you were born and raised in a Christian home. 
by the grace of God? No, no. None of those things. It was because of God's determination to rescue you. Period. He placed His love on you. He wooed you. No man comes to the Father unless the Father first draws them, pulls them, drags them, as it were, to Himself. This is all the picture that's being presented in this real expression, this real marriage that boggles the mind that a man would go do this. This is what God does. And so he gives to Hosea commanded actions, and the actions can be summarized very simply by the, the, the statement of, of redemption, to purchase back your wayward bride. The language is given in, in true living color and it, to tell the story of the event in verse 2. So I bought her, I bought her, notice that word, I bought her, underline it in your Bible if you must. I redeemed her, if you will. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leachet of barley. Now, for most of you, you, you read that verse, you keep right on going. And that's Okay. But I want you to stop for a minute on the word barley. Barley is often pictured in the Old Testament and especially into the New Testament as a symbol of redemption. John references it specifically in the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only time in which it's referenced that way. The other synoptic gospels that mention the feeding of the 5,000 do not tell us what kind of bread it is, but John does. He says it's barley loaves. And there are other references in the Old Testament I can't think of them off the top of my head right now, but each time they show up, it seems to always be in the connection of the redeeming work of God. Hosea buys her. He purchases her. He pays a price for her. The picture, of course, is obvious, isn't it? our redemption from idolatry, our self-centered living. But it wasn't bought with money. Maybe that would be more to you if God purchased you with money. I don't know. It ought not. But Peter tells us plainly in 1 Peter 1 that you weren't purchased with stuff. Your bank account, God's bank account, which would be, well, astronomical. No, no. You were purchased with the blood of his own son. He offered him intentionally, deliberately. It pleased the Father to crush him for your sake. What was the price of your redemption? The death of the Son of God. What was the price of your comfort and hope for the future, the new heavens and the new earth? Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin that you might have peace with the God of heaven. Homer here, or Hosea here, purchases his bride back with things, but it pictures for us the thing, that redeeming work 
that Christ committed himself to. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem that he might offer his life a ransom for many. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And that's precisely what the Father commissioned his Son to do. And that is what he did willingly, that he might redeem stubborn, wicked, rebellious, miserable people. You and me. But this purchase demands something. Doesn't it? I think that's part of the problem with preaching in the church today, that we'd love to talk about the redeeming work of Christ, and, and we ought to, and we must. But we can't forget about the other side. I've illustrated this point that I'm about to make multiple times with this illustration, but here it is anyway. I'll come up with a new one later, I guess. But imagine that you owed a debt that you couldn't pay if you lived a thousand lifetimes. I don't know, what's the national debt? 32 trillion, I forgot, and tomorrow it'll be bigger. You know, whatever it is, it's ridiculous. It's never gonna get paid, we all know this. Imagine if that was your debt, 32 trillion. The phone never stops ringing every night, you can't sleep. By the way, you've ever noticed why, if you're up in the middle of the night, commercials on TV are about debt reduction and all that stuff. Why do you think that is? Because people can't sleep, because they're nervous, they're worried. The phone rings off the hook day after day after day. Well, someone comes along, a friend of yours, and says, hey, look, you know what? I'm so tired of seeing you struggle. I'm so tired of seeing you burdened with this this misery. So I'm going to pay your debt for you. Here's the check. Send it in. Done. It's clean slate time. You are redeemed. It's all over. You see, that's what God did. That's what he did here, and that's what he's done. He paid a debt for you you could never pay, ever. Imagine if this friend, two weeks later, calls you on the phone. I know you're not afraid to answer the phone anymore. You answer it. It's your friend, and he says, hey, Jim, Joe, Susie, whatever, i got to move a couch from my living room to my family room. I need help. Will you come help me? Are you going to say no? Of course not. You might be in his house before the phone hangs up. Why? Out of gratitude of what he's done. Redemption requires... There's a demand to this redemption that God has secured for you. The same demand that is placed on on, on Gomer here. Notice verse 3, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. God has redeemed us. He is the redeemer. Yahweh is now your God. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. He has guaranteed your safe arrival at that heavenly rest. He will bring you safely there. He will be with you in trial and trouble, in sickness and in health. But he demands of you and me a response. That response that says, you know, because of everything you've done for me that I don't deserve, not even close, I could never pay back. 
I'm going to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm committing my whole life to Him. Every ounce of my being, every fiber of my mind and my heart is going to be given to the God who saved me. I'm going to live that way. Most of you are members of this church. I think as I scan across the room, all of you are. You've taken vows to live as becomes a follower of Christ. You can take that vow to me. Or to the elders even. We heard it. We enforce it. We shepherd you. We care for you. We guide you. We help you. We want to. We pray for you. Elders, you better be. But you made that vow to the Lord. To the God who saved you. To who, the God who redeemed you. The God who paid a debt you could never pay. Even when you were dead in sin. Even when you were rebelling against him. Even when you were an idolater like these people. Even when you were an adulterer like Gomer. What is the expectation then, therefore? Out of gratitude, you live committed to your husband, the God of heaven. Period. Now, that has all kinds of implications. We don't have time to deal with all those, so I press on. As Hosea now, he turns from his own marriage in this passage to consider the relationship between the Lord and Israel. Quoting from a commentator, he envisions, he envisions, forget it. He sees that the Lord's discipline of them will require that they endure a period of minimal existence as a nation without a king and as a people without atoning access to God. This punishment imposed by the Lord in his loving concern for the well-being of the people, was designed to eradicate unwholesome influences from their midst, to induce true spiritual change in their thinking and habits, to achieve complete restoration, which is described in messianic terms, unquote. What does that mean? It means that God is going to discipline his bride because he loves his bride. And he does, indeed, in 722 B.C., he will indeed exile them. But they don't stay that way forever. There is a remnant, there is a people that he will woo back and turn their hearts to him. He promises in this section of the third chapter the safety of the people as they wait for a king, a period of discipline for their former sins. Look, sin has consequence. Your sin put Christ on the cross. It has consequence. This discipline is designed for their good. He who he loves, he disciplines. This reference that Hosea is making here is specifically referencing the exile in which the northern kingdom would soon pass through. But there is hope for a people, a future generation, first then through the exile and then today through waiting. You and I are waiting. Every Lord's Day, we say it at the end of our worship service. Ask me sometime, I'll tell you where I got that from. I think I've probably told you already. But anyway, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're waiting. We are on a big holding pattern right now. But we're not idle. We're not just sitting around. But we are waiting. 
We're waiting for that picture that's presented there. Verse 4, the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. We're waiting. Not for the return of David or Moses or any of those other people, as great as they may have been. They were just men. No, no. We're waiting for the king. The king that will guarantee all that he has already said in the prophetical section of chapter 2. All of those things that are promised to you and to me. That's what we're waiting for. The safety that is guaranteed by our redemption will certainly come to pass. There's nothing that can stop it. It will happen. All the forces of hell can rally themselves against it. And it will happen anyway. And so we wait as pilgrims in this land. We wait for the great day of the Lord's return. We have the king now, and we will have him then. We say with one voice, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because this is what we want. We want the war against the world, the flesh, and the devil to be over. God tips his hand again. By that language he gives in verse 5, Afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. David's been dead for years and years and years and years and years. Why mention David? It's not odd, isn't it? I mean, you read that and you think, well, why mention David? He's been dead. I mean, he's not going to be raised from the dead, is he? No? Yes? The greater son of David? Jesus Christ himself. God tips his hand about the new exodus and your redemption. He tips his hand about the new heavens and the new earth. He tells his people, look, I've saved you. I've redeemed you. You are mine. And I will deliver you safely to that heavenly rest that has been promised. That return to the land, not a place in Israel, not a place in the Middle East. I don't want that. Neither do you. No, no, you want the new heavens and the new earth with God dwelling in the midst, lighting the city. Ruled by a king, not an earthly king. As great as David was, you don't want him. As wise as Solomon was, you don't want him either. And all the rest of the kings, well, just forget about it. All the northern kings were terrible, and there's only a few southern kings that were good. You want the king. This is what Hosea is telling us. There is coming a king. The king. It's a messianic reference to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, ruled by this king, the king of glory. Gives here in this summary section, then therefore, a real picture offered by the king, using the words of another commentator in which he says, first, in Christ we have true redemption. In this true king, we have true redemption, not through sacrifices offered by human priests, not through memorial stones in Joshua's day, not through rituals, not through a parcel of land, but by the total work of the Savior, the true king. This is everything that God, the husband, is going to do for this wayward bride. Second, not only in Christ we have true redemption, in Christ we have sure hope. We don't trust in bulls and goats. Those sacrifices were fine and good and ordered by God, but they're done because the sacrifice has been offered. We receive and we rest upon him alone for salvation, nothing else. He is the final and great king of the people of God who assures us of his love for us. 
And third, in Christ we have a sure promise. Not of a land. I hope that's not what you want. Not that land. I mean, the weather isn't very good. And it's mostly desert. That was a joke. No, no, we await another country. You see, friends, this is not your home. You're just passing through. You've heard that before. You're just pilgrims. You ever notice when you look in this room, this is an aside, it's free. I won't charge you for this. You see an American flag in this building, in this room? You ever ask yourself why? Because we don't worship in here as citizens of the United States. We worship in this room as citizens of a better country. That country that was secured by a great king, Christ himself. That's why we're here. We wait. We have this sure promise, not of a land, but of another country, of the new heavens and the new earth. All of this has been purchased for us in the redeeming work of God, the husband. For wayward, weary, rebellious people, you and me, this is what he does. He does this because our God is faithful. If it depended on you and me, we'd all be done, ruined, gone, over, game, closed. Forget it, it's over. If it depended on you and me. No, 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 it depends on this faithful husband. Our God is a faithful God who loves his church. He loves his people. Everything that happens to you during the week, every minutia, every detail, every circumstance, it's all an expression of the love of God. You might think, well, I don't know, too much love, too many trials. It's the love of God. He knows what he's doing. What lengths, what efforts did he expend to secure you? Prone to wander was the northern tribes of Israel. Prone to wander in a big way. You and I are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But here's the thing. If you learn anything from this passage, you learn this. Your redeeming God will not let you go. He will woo you. He will work on you. He will discipline you if he has to. But he will not lose you. He has promised to deliver you through the work of Christ, the great king, to that better country that we all await. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for all the promises, the hope that this passage gives to your weary people. We know and we confess that we often stray. Our hearts are often confused, divided, our minds not where they should be. Our actions, they don't represent that which we say we are. And yet, you are still patient with us. Faithful to the end, always working all things in such a way that you, like the northern tribes, that you might deliver your church faithfully 
to that place we wait for and long for even tonight. May you help us as your redeemed people. May we live according to that great work that you have done in your Son. We ask and pray for Christ's sake. Amen.